Hi, I'm Bill Wiley. I'm Stephen Dell. And I'm Rob Weinstock. And we're the co-chief medical editors of Cataract and Refractive Surgery Today. So you made it to another episode of CRST The Podcast, a monthly program with content curated from the popular trade publication, Cataract and Refractive Surgery Today. In this episode, we're taking a break from surgical matters and turning our attention to navigating potential compliance risks in ophthalmic practice. I'm Laura Straub, Editor-in-Chief of CRST. Let's get to it. First up, Alan Ryder, a retired partner at Arnold & Porter Law Firm in Washington, D.C., and founder and owner of LSR Consulting, walks us through the intricacies of physician contracts with manufacturers and reminds listeners that documentation is an essential defense when questions arise. The evolution of medical technology has led to extraordinary advances that benefit patients experiencing a broad range of health problems, and the role of clinicians has been crucial to ensuring the safety and efficacy of this evolution. Concerns, however, have been raised about whether physicians working with industry to develop new technology and their participation in subsequent educational and promotional efforts creates a conflict of interest that may cloud clinical decisions. These concerns are addressed, in part, by restrictions on the role of industry in the continuing education process and by the requirement that financial disclosures be made by physicians who provide educational services. The public disclosure of the extent of financial relationships between individual physicians and manufacturers through the Physician Payment Sunshine Act is intended to provide an additional degree of accountability. A more fundamental issue arises when physicians who provide clinical care also work with and are compensated by industry. Specifically, was the compensation received by the physician in exchange for legitimate services performed on behalf of a manufacturer, or was the payment made in whole or in part to influence the physician to use or prescribe a particular item or service. In these cases, both the physician and the manufacturer risk potential allegations of violating the federal anti-kickback statute, for which both the physician and manufacturer could face significant sanctions. The purpose of this article is not to discourage physicians from contracting with manufacturers to provide valuable services, such as clinical trial investigator or advisory board member, that are crucial for the development of new technologies. That said, whenever there is financial relationship between a physician and a manufacturer, and the physician elects to prescribe or order the items from a manufacturer to treat patients, a question arises as to whether that financial relationship is appropriate. When a physician orders the item or service to treat a patient covered by Medicare, Medicaid, or another federal health care program, application of the anti-kickback statute may become an issue. This is not a theoretical concern. There has been significant enforcement activity addressing this conduct during the past several years, with many manufacturers and physicians, including ophthalmologists, subject to harsh sanctions. There is, however, a positive message to go with this warning. By following three basic guidelines and learning from the cases that have been pursued in the past, 
Both physicians and manufacturers should be able to minimize the risk of violation and resulting imposition of sanctions. Number one, the contract must be for legitimate necessary services. A fundamental question in any kickback analysis is as follows. Was the payment for legitimate services that provided a real benefit to the manufacturer, or was the contract a sham that served only as a mechanism to pay the physician? The U.S. government has frequently questioned contracts in which physicians were responsible for collecting and providing clinical data to manufacturers, such as in a pre-marketing study, where the data were collected but never used. Similar questions have been raised when a manufacturer has contracted with dozens of physicians to provide consulting services, but the need for only a few physician consultants could be justified. Although the burden of ensuring the legitimacy of such contracts should rest with the manufacturer, a physician who is offered a consulting or data collection agreement would be wise to examine the arrangement closely to be comfortable that the agreement will generate legitimate, valuable services. Number two, the physician must perform the services and be able to document the performance. Having a written contract for the performance of a legitimate service for a manufacturer is not sufficient to justify payment. The physician must also perform the service contemplated under the contract. Performing the contracted services, however, may not be enough to avoid risk. For many years, physicians have been counseled to maintain complete medical records for their patients, with the caution that if it isn't in the medical record, it didn't happen. That is, the physician did not perform the services. Physicians should follow the same advice when it comes to documenting the work performed under an agreement with a manufacturer. Some services generate their own documentation, such as performing a clinical trial that generates clinical records and data, and a report of the findings. Other services, such as providing general consulting, may not. Physicians should therefore consider ways of documenting the performance of services so that they are prepared, if ever asked, to justify the payment received. Number three, Payment for services must reflect their fair market value. Presuming that the services are reasonable and provide a benefit to the manufacturer, that they were performed, and that there is documentation to confirm that the services were performed, the final area of inquiry is whether the payment was reasonable for the services performed. Some contracts lend themselves to fixed payment amounts for discrete projects, such as overseeing a clinical trial drafting a scientific paper, or hosting an educational symposium. Many others lend themselves only to payment based on the time expended. Furthermore, even in the case of fixed payment agreements, the government often considers the amount of time expended by the physician to complete the project to determine if the payment was proper. As a result, the hourly rate has become a critical data point when analyzing the fair market value of a contract. For many years, the physician community sought, without success, guidance on what hourly rate the government would consider to be reasonable for consulting and related services. For many years, the physician community sought, without success, guidance on what hourly rate the government would consider to be reasonable for consulting and related services. 
Then, in 2007, a series of cases was settled with five major orthopedic medical device manufacturers that had been accused of paying kickbacks to physicians who ordered their devices. The government alleged that the physicians received unreasonably high payment amounts under consulting agreements, which constituted a violation of the anti-kickback statute. After a lengthy investigation, the manufacturers agreed to settle with payments for all totaling several hundred million dollars. As part of the settlement, the manufacturers agreed to pay no more than a fair market rate for these consulting services. Fortunately, here the government articulated a standard to determine fair market value. Payments of up to $500 per hour were acceptable, but companies were expected to make distinctions based on categories such as expertise and reputation. In other words, not every physician was expected to qualify for the $500 hourly rate. Additionally, the government acknowledged that, for some experts, even the $500 hourly rate might be inadequate. In these cases, the company could pay a higher hourly rate if it were supported by an independent valuation expert. The resolution of that case has been used widely by manufacturers as the foundation on which to establish an hourly rate for physician consulting agreements. The $500 hourly benchmark has been adjusted over time, and some manufacturers have sought assistance from valuation experts to establish a protocol to determine an appropriate rate for all physicians. Regardless of what methodology is used, physicians should take the initiative to be sure that the rate paid under any agreement can be justified as fair market value. Contractual relationships between physicians and manufacturers are important to the development and assessment of new technology that benefits patients. Because these relationships generate payments to physicians who also make clinical decisions about which items or services to provide to their patients, the motivation for those clinical decisions can be questioned. It is crucial for physicians to take steps to protect themselves as they provide these valuable services. Following the guidance presented in this article should help to give some degree of protection. Thanks, Mr. Ryder. The following article, read by Arnold and Porter Legal Counsel Nancy L. Perkins, takes a deep dive into privacy, security, and telehealth. The COVID-19 pandemic has created a surge in the use of online communication for healthcare purposes. The risk of exposure to the virus associated with in-person visits to treating physicians has escalated the demand for telehealth, regardless of specialty. Telehealth creates opportunities for eye surgeons and others, but it also comes with risks, including risks to patients' privacy and to the security of patients' information. Under privacy and security regulations implementing HIPAA, physicians who are HIPAA-covered entities are responsible for ensuring that their communications involving the transmission of protected health information, or PHI, are secure. The use of a third-party communication service involving PHI generally triggers a requirement for a HIPAA Business Associate Agreement, or BAA, with the provider of the service, which binds the service provider i.e. the business associate, to privacy, security, and security breach notification requirements 
under the HIPAA privacy, security, and breach notification rules. Physicians have become sophisticated about these requirements with respect to provider-to-provider communication. In these situations, security controls such as end-to-end encryption and user authentication measures are typically used to protect PHI included in the communications. But telehealth with patients rarely works as smoothly. Patients may not have access to or be able to afford the types of technology that best serve to secure their PHI. Moreover, during the current pandemic, finding service providers with sufficiently secure technologies that are willing to sign HIPAA BAAs has been challenging. So I'm gonna discuss six major questions on HIPAA privacy and security as they relate to telehealth during the current pandemic and beyond. The first question is, what telehealth solutions are available during the COVID pandemic period? The Office of Civil Rights, or OCR, at the Department of Health and Human Services administers the HIPAA privacy, security, and breach notification rules. OCR has issued a series of notices this year in response to the COVID-19 emergency, including a notice of enforcement discretion related to telehealth. On March 17, OCR announced that, effective immediately, it would waive potential penalties for violations of the HIPAA rules for healthcare providers and their business associates who conduct telehealth through everyday communications technologies during the COVID-19 nationwide public health emergency. A few days later, OCR released guidance regarding the purpose and the scope of the waiver. As OCR Director Roger Severino explained, the waiver is intended to empower, quote, medical providers to serve patients wherever they are during this national public health emergency, end quote, whether for purposes related to COVID-19 or for other treatment needs. The waiver does not extend to HIPAA-covered entities that are health plans or their business associates, but specifically focuses on provider communications with patients, including through third-party technology. So the second question is, what does OCR's waiver permit? Under the OCR telehealth-related waiver, HIPAA-covered healthcare providers, quote, will not be subject to penalties for violations of the HIPAA privacy, security, and breach notification rules that occur in the good faith provision of telehealth during the COVID-19 nationwide public health emergency, end quote. So what does that mean in practice? What risks of HIPAA violations are most likely in the context of telehealth? HIPAA-related risks from using remote technologies to deliver healthcare could include violating the HIPAA privacy rule by disclosing PHI to a person other than the patient, violating the HIPAA security rule by using communications technologies that fail to safeguard the security of electronic PHI, violating both the privacy and security rules by electronically transmitting PHI through a communications vendor without entering into a HIPAA BAA with the vendor, and violating the HIPAA breach notification rule if there were a data security breach involving the vendor's technology and the vendor failed to report the breach to the healthcare provider, which would result in the healthcare provider not making its required breach notifications to individuals or to the Department of Health and Human Services. The OCR waiver might protect against enforcement for these violations, 
but it's not clear that the waiver would protect against them. That would depend on whether the delivery of telehealth in the particular instance was in good faith. So then the third question is, what is a good faith provision of telehealth services? OCR didn't answer that question, has not answered that question, but it did provide guidance on what would not constitute a good faith provision of telehealth services. And what would not includes engaging in identity theft or any intentional invasion of privacy, using or disclosing patient data transmitted during a telehealth communication for purposes not authorized under the HIPAA privacy rule, violating state licensing laws or professional ethical standards, or using public-facing remote communications products deemed unacceptable by OCR for telehealth because they're designed to be open to the public or they allowed wide or indiscriminate access to the communications they host. Well, the first three types of bad faith conduct are clearly recognizable as inconsistent with legal and ethical principles. The last, though, may require at least some healthcare providers to do diligence. So question four is, which remote communications products are public-facing and which are not? Public-facing communications products, such as a public chat room on the internet, for example, Slack, are designed to be open to the public. Other examples of public-facing products are communications channels such as TikTok, Facebook Live, and Twitch. None of these products strictly controls access by uninvited participants. In contrast, a non-public-facing remote communications product blocks anyone other than the parties intended to be included in the communication from entering into the communication. In announcing its waiver, OCR identified examples of non-public-facing products that would be acceptable. And you can find those if you look at the actual text of the waiver. As OCR noted, the non-public-facing Platforms it identified typically provide end-to-end encryption, which allows only an individual and the person with whom the individual is communicating to see what's transmitted. These platforms also provide individual user accounts, logins, and passcodes for participants, and generally give participants control over privacy-related options such as recording the communication, muting their own lines, or turning off the video, or audio signal at any time. When OCR issued its Notice of Enforcement Discretion on telehealth, Zoom was receiving considerable criticism over reported security vulnerabilities and apparently would have been a risky choice of communications vendor for telehealth purposes. This provider, though, has since taken steps to address these vulnerabilities, including offering end-to-end encryption to both paying and non-paying users. Given that this platform also provides for muting recording, and shutting off audio at any time, OCR would likely consider Zoom an acceptable non-public-facing platform at this time. So question five is, will all non-public-facing communications product vendors enter into BAAs? Well, some vendors of telehealth technology, including Doxy.me, Doxy.me, Google Meet, Skype for Business, Updocs, VC, and Zoom for Healthcare offer to enter into BAAs with their customers. Many other vendors, though, including those that offer non-public-facing communications platforms that can be used for telehealth, do not purport to provide the level of data protection mandated under a HIPAA BAA. 
For as long as the OCR waiver for good faith telehealth remains in place, HIPAA-covered entities may use non-public-facing communications platforms, including Apple FaceTime, Facebook Messenger video chat, Google Meet video, and Skype, to provide telehealth, even if the vendors of those platforms do not execute HIPAA BAAs. Healthcare providers that use such vendors, however, should warn patients of the associated data security risks. Furthermore, all providers offering telehealth should conduct their own sessions in private settings, such as a clinic or an office, and should encourage patients to conduct their sessions in a separate room at home or elsewhere. Patients should not receive telehealth services in public or semi-public settings unless they are they explicitly request it after being informed of the risk or in exigent circumstances. So the final and sixth question is, what about telehealth under HIPAA in the long term? The forced reliance on telehealth during the COVID-19 pandemic to protect, protect the health of patients and physicians almost certainly will result in an expanded use of telehealth in the long term. In fact, in a study conducted in April, approximately 90% of the respondents in a survey of more than 1,000 physicians reported using at least some form of telehealth, and 60% said they were planning to continue this practice after the emergency. The HIPAA waivers currently in place are not intended as as long-term provisions of law and are expressly intended to expire once the COVID-19 national public health emergency is over. Providers that seek to take advantage of the benefits of telehealth, including its considerable efficiencies and cost-effectiveness, should be planning for adequate privacy in their telehealth policies, procedures, technology, and contractual provisions for the long term. Healthcare providers should actively press telehealth communications vendors for descriptions of their security measures, and once the OCR waiver expires, they must require that the vendors enter into BAAs. Comparison shopping with a variety of vendors is recommended, with demands for end-to-end encryption and the other types of security controls mentioned earlier. Technology can be expected to advance rapidly, and healthcare providers should not rest easy with a telehealth communications vendor whose security measures do not keep pace. Hackers will constantly be developing and testing new avenues by which to intrude on communication systems where PHI is available, because healthcare information reportedly is of far greater value than credit card information. Providers must be proactive about these risks in order to meet the requirements of the HIPAA security rule and state laws for reasonable security. Telehealth is in its infancy and promises to have a long life. Ideally, it should be as private and secure as a physician-patient meeting in a closed-door physician's office. If providers are educated on the risks, they can work to mitigate them. OCR's current waiver should not be construed to minimize the risks, but rather to highlight them. Thank you, Ms. Perkins. This topic is even more relevant today as surgeons, staff, and patients continue to navigate the new norms in healthcare thanks to COVID-19. Lastly, John McInnes, also a legal counsel at Arnold & Porter, provides valuable information on the non-covered services related to premium IOLs and reviews relevant rulings by CMS. Premium IOL 
is an unofficial term that refers to IOLs that CMS has designated as presbyopia correcting, astigmatism correcting, or a combination of the two. IOLs that are not premium are generally referred to as conventional IOLs. These are primarily monofocal IOLs that provide distance vision, but not near vision or astigmatism correction. Although administrative ruling CMS 0501 and CMS 1536-R, CMS established that cataract surgery that is performed on a Medicare beneficiary, and that includes the implantation of a premium IOL, is a partially covered service under Medicare. This means that all, ter- all items and services consistent with cataract surgery in the implantation of a conventional IOL are covered by Medicare, and that the premium IOL and the serv- services attributable to the premium IOL are not covered by Medicare and therefore paid for by the patient. CMS's basis for designating premium IOLs and associated services as non-covered is the refractive benefit afforded by these lenses. Refractive surgery that serves to replace eyeglasses or contact lenses is not a benefit that is covered by Medicare. So the presbyopia correcting and astigmatism correcting functions of premium IOLs are deemed non-covered by CMS. Medicare beneficiaries may elect to pay out of pocket for the premium aspects of these IOLs. A list of premium IOLs is available at the CMS website and is updated regularly as FDA approves new premium IOLs. CMS created the terms presbyopia correcting IOL and astigmatism correcting IOL for the payment policies described in the agency's aforementioned rulings. These terms are not recognized by FDA except for an acknowledgement of the CMS premium IOL payment policy. This article explores covered and non-covered services associated with premium IOLs. In the previously mentioned ruling, CMS discusses which services associated with premium IOLs are not covered and that are therefore billable to the patient. In ruling CMS 0501, CMS states the following, the presbyopia correcting functionality of an IOL does not fall into a benefit category and is not covered. Any additional provider or physician services required to insert or monitor a patient receiving a presbyopia correcting IOL are also not covered. For example, eye examinations performed to determine the refractive state of the eyes following insertion of a presbyopia correcting IOL are non-covered. These statements have generally been interpreted to mean that a premium IOL is not covered and that the services required for the implantation and proper functioning of the premium IOL that are not performed as a part of a conventional cataract surgery with an IOL are not covered. This applies to non-covered services provided by both the physician and the facility. 
either an ambulatory surgery center or hospital outpatient department. The rulings also state that these non-covered services are the patient's financial responsibility. Because these services are not within a Medicare benefit category, physicians are not required to have patients sign an advanced beneficiary notice before furnishing a premium IOL uh, for these patients to be financially responsible for the non-covered services. Nevertheless, from a risk management perspective, it is best to provide patients with clear notice of their financial obligation for the non-covered services. Exactly what services associated with the implantation of a premium IOL are considered non-covered? Beyond the statements and example discussed earlier, CMS has not provided additional guidance on the subject except in the case of a femtosecond laser, which I'll discuss a bit later. Nor has there been much scrutiny by CMS or others of precisely which non-covered services are attributed to the additional charges to the patient associated with premium IOLs by either the physician or the facility. That said, the penalties for overcharging Medicare beneficiaries for covered services can be significant. Generally speaking, Medicare covers tests, steps, and tasks that are part of the protocol for the cataract surgery with the implantation of a conventional IOL. These fully covered services extend to surgeries in which the implant is a premium IOL and the standard Medicare payment for covered services plus the standard coinsurance are considered payment in full for this part of the overall service. Covered and non-covered services in premium IOL surgery include uh, the following. Covered services would include the preoperative examination, except for a refraction, which is never covered, the A-scan and other tests related to calculating the IOL power, and the cataract surgery itself, the incision, capsulorexis, and other steps required to remove the cataract and implant the IOL, and any postoperative examinations within the 90-day global period. Non-covered services, for example, uh, would, in- would include the following. Testing and counseling determine to determine uh, what, if any, type of presbyopia-correcting IOL or astigmatism-correcting IOL would be most appropriate for the patient. Testing and measurements related to the IOL power that are of a type uh, that are beyond what is performed to calculate the IOL power of a conventional IOL. Preoperative measurements for marking uh, related to the axial alignment of a a astigmatism correcting IOL. Additional postoperative examinations beyond the 90-day global period for conventional IOLs to the extent these are designated as necessary uh, by the surgeon as part of the premium IOL postoperative course. And additional services and or more intensive postoperative visits during the 90-day global period uh, to the extent designated by the surgeon that would not be necessary with a conventional um, IOL. So the use of a femtosecond laser during premium IOL surgery can be considered non-covered, but only if it's performed on a limited and atypical basis in conjunction with conventional 
uh, IOL surgery. If a femtosecond laser is routinely used both during conventional and premium IOL surgery for things such as nuclear disassembly or ca capsulorexis, then it's considered to be a covered part of conventional IOL surgery. In conclusion, uh, CMS's original ruling on presbyopia-correcting IOLs and astigmatism-correcting IOLs have been in place for 15 years uh, and have been used without significant controversy. But physicians much, must understand that the core service is a Medicare-covered uh, cataract surgery with implantation of an IOL, supplemented by a non-covered refractive benefit associated with the presbyopia-correcting or astigmatism-correcting aspects of these premium IOLs. Non-covered services that are being furnished to the patient and the associated charges for them should be clearly documented in the medical record and communicated to the patient before surgery. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of CRST The Podcast. And remember to check out other articles in this series by visiting crstoday.com and clicking on the Issues tab.